Wow. I love to be asked to come and speak and teach at classes like this, but I especially love to be asked to come teach classes like this when it's winter and I come to a place like Florida, all right? So it's, it's not just because it's a warm place that, I, that I'm excited to be here, but that sure does put the, the, the sugar on top. So it snowed, what, five, six inches I'm from Minneapolis, or I live in Minneapolis anyway. It snowed five or six inches the day before I left, and it made it that much sweeter to be getting on a plane and heading to Florida, right? Is anybody here not from Florida, but you're from the Midwest somewhere where it's cold? And All right, anybody from Iowa? Oh, nobody from Iowa. Okay, I'm from Iowa. Anybody from Minnesota? Minnesota, oh, don't you know? Yeah, who butcha? Okay. <laughs> all right, well, I, I, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, and uh, has it been a good six weeks so far? Feel like you have some, been challenged, convicted, have learned some things? Good. Well, let me introduce you really quick to my family. This is my wife. We've been, Nikki, we've been married 28 years. And my two daughters, both adopted from the country of Laos. My daughter Lily on the left, the older one, and my youngest is 14, still at home, and her name's Liana. And before we adopted them in Laos, we have two foster sons that, not officially through the foster system, but they, we were working in Southern California and they, they were gangbangers and got saved through our ministry and then came to live with us. We homeschooled them and all through college. And this is our, our son, Tony. He's a missionary in East Asia now. And then our son, Pine. Uh, he's serving God still in Southern California. So not bad to go from gangbangers to missionaries and, and serving God. Anybody here have kids that are adopted? All right. Yeah, when, when, you, uh, when you have kids that are adopted, sometimes you get asked dumb questions. Like, well, do you have any real kids? <laughs> right? And I'm like, well, if these kids aren't real, they sure eat a lot. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then they say, well, like, well, I mean, any of your own. And I'm saying, yeah, these are my kids. And then I want to say, but you know, just because you gave birth to your kids, if you think they're your kids, <laughs> you're mistaken, right? Because whether we have our kids through birth or through adoption, they're a gift from God, and we raise them for him to live and serve him. And so, uh, so tonight is the end of the class. How many of you would honestly say you're kind of glad to get your what is it, Tuesday, Wednesday? Wednesday night's back. Or you, you wish the class would go on. Okay, maybe, maybe you wish it would go on. How many of you would say, I've learned a lot, but now I'm not sure what to do with all that I've learned? Okay, some of you thinking that. So that's kind of my job tonight is to kind of land it and let us know what, what do we do with all that we've learned? And so... Um, this lesson is, I, I don't know exactly what it's titled, but it's something about being a global Christian. And if you didn't know before you started this class, I'm sure you've learned by now that our God is a global God. And this class hasn't been about turning you into a missionary necessarily, right? But it has been about seeing you live as a global Christian. Our God is a global God, and we need to be global Christians, well, what exactly is a global Christian? Well, we actually have a definition. And a global Christian 
is one who understands God's heart for the world and strategically lives their life in such a way that wherever they are, whatever they do, they're striving to see him glorified among the nations, right? So it says one who understands God's heart. Now, how do we understand God's heart? Through the word, amen? And the first couple of weeks were in the word looking at this meta-narrative right through scripture. Did you guys learn from Genesis to Revelation, understanding God's heart, his passion, his desire to be glorified, to be known and glorified and worshiped among all nations. So a global Christian is one who understands God's heart from his word and has heart for the world. So you not only learn about God's word, but you also learn about God's world, right? In the last few weeks, you heard about the, the, the task and where the task has been finished, where it's not finished, what it's going to take to finish the task. I think last week you heard from Greg Allen and his wife, and Iuna gave her testimony. Isn't that incredible? She's such a good communicator. And that gave us a good picture of what that finished task looks like if somebody actually goes to a people group and, and, and learns the language and, and, and shares the gospel and then brings people to Christ and see what, what it looks like to finish that task among a people group. So you've learned about God's word, God's world, and then this definition says that they strategic, a global Christian strategically lives their life in such a way that wherever they are, whatever they do, they're striving to see them glorified among all nations. And so you notice that has nothing to do with location, right? It's about a lifestyle. And so you've learned about God's word, God's world, and tonight I'm going to talk about God's work. What are the ways that we can live as a global Christian right here in, are we in Naples? Okay, right here in Naples, all right? And so there's actually five ways to live as a global Christian. Intercessor, goer, sender, welcomer, and mobilizer. Five different ways we can live as a global Christian. And so I'm, I'm actually just going to go through each one of those, and I'll tell you right now, I got a lot to say, and I know I'm not going to get through all five of those. But, but we will hit as many as we can. So I've been involved in the missions world for about 35 plus years, right? Which is incredible because I'm only 29. All right, I hope you're not laughing because you think I look old. Do I look red though? Because this white boy from Minnesota was out in the sun today just taking in the rays. I haven't had sun since like... Halloween last year, and it's been, it's been sweet. But uh, I've been involved over, the, over 35 plus years, and, and in different ways over that whole time. So the best way I would describe myself is, I, over the last 35 plus years, I've been a global Christian. So actually, four of these five I've done as full-time jobs. Um, the only one I haven't done full-time is intercessor. I've not found a way to get to somebody to pay me to pray but I have done all the others as full-time jobs. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start going through that list and uh, give you the biblical basis behind it. And my goal is for each one of those to give you some practical actions that you can take where you are in response to everything you've learned from this class. All right? So if you're taking notes, there will be practical steps that you can write down and you can, you can live out as a result of the things you've learned going through this class. So that's kind of 
kind of what we're going to do, where we're going to head. So let me, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the, the first way to live as a global Christian. Father, I, I thank you so much for this church and for uh, those from this church that have committed to come to this class and have committed the last seven weeks to be here. I thank you for the things that they've learned. And I pray now as we just uh, kind of finish, finish off these seven weeks and as we look at ways that we can live, Lord, to see you glorified among the nations. I pray that tonight would just be biblical and practical. And uh, Lord, we could just take what we learned tonight and, and respond in obedience to your word. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first one is an informed intercessor. One way to live as a global Christian is live as an informed intercessor. And the definition there, what that means is an informed intercessor stands in the gap for unreached peoples. And you've learned what an unreached people group is. Have you learned those definitions and those kinds of things? Yes? Yes? Okay. All right. So, informed intercessor. So, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read verses 35 through 38. And from this passage, pull out three actions for being an informed intercessor. It says, Jesus, verse 35 of Matthew 9, if you're there, follow along as I read. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest fields. So here we read, Jesus is going from from town to town, from village to village. He's preaching in the, in the synagogues. He's healing people. And, and so you get this picture from town to town, village to village. He's in people's homes. He's in places of worship. And as he's going through all these places, it says he saw the crowds. Now you might say, well, duh, right? How could you not do that and not see the crowds? But you have to understand that this word, see the crowds, it's a much deeper word than just see with your eyes. It's actually in the Greek, it's a word that means to see more, not with your eyes, but to see with your mind and your heart, right? To perceive, to have understanding. And, and, and so he saw the crowds with his mind, with his heart. Now, a lot of times we don't see the crowds that way, do we? Especially crowds that are of another religion and another ethnicity, because we tend to stay in our comfort zone, don't we? And stay with people like us. But it says here that when Jesus saw the crowds, not with eyes, but with mind and heart, he says that he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, let's get that picture. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's this picture of, of, of being pinned down by a predator and being harassed. That's what he saw with his mind, with his heart. Now, what does that look like 
to be pinned down and harassed spiritually by a predator. Um, sometimes that, that, that's a lot more obvious or, or more clearly seen, sometimes in other cultures and other worldviews. So um, my, my wife and I, we spent, we spent a few years in Laos as missionaries. And uh, one of our times in Laos, uh, we were doing a survey trip among a people group called the So People. The So People, uh, living in Laos, most of the So spoke Lao as well as the So language. And uh, actually, my, my son, I just showed you, Tony, he was, he was going to work among the So, and so we were doing some survey trips, and, and, and we were just going to pray through villages and just asking for God to come and work you know, work and move in these villages to bring people to himself. And uh, it was kind of, I mean, Laos, anybody ever been to Laos? No? You have, okay, awesome. Laos is a, I'll talk to you at a break. Laos is a beautiful country, right? I mean, yeah, some of the places, so the province, it was great. We got on these motorbikes, we went out to these rural areas, and, and then we would just walk through these villages and pray. We were in this one particular village, and we're walking through the village, and I saw this older gentleman standing near his house, and the houses in Laos are up on stilts when you go out to the villages, and so there's kind of a shade underneath so you can stand and get out of the sun. And I saw this older man standing under the shade of his, of his house, and so I, I thought, I'm going to go talk to him. So I go over there, and, you know, I'm like, oh, sabadi lung, pinel dai, sabadi ba, mi king hang ba, you know, things you would, I'd say, you know, how are you doing, uncle? Uh, are you healthy? You know, how are you feeling? Things that you might ask an older person. We began this conversation. While we're talking, we hear a, a, I hear a voice from up in his house. And I said, Uncle, is that your wife? And he said, yes. And I said, she sounds sick. And he goes, oh, she's very sick. And he started telling me what was wrong with her. And uh, he was using the vocabulary words I, I, were, I wasn't quite sure about. So I said, well, let me go get the rest of my group and let's come over and uh, let's come visit you. So I went up and rounded the rest of the team and it was, it was me and my son, Tony, one of the national workers, a Lao guy named Ta, and then a team that we had brought from the U.S. of Asian Americans. And we went up into the house, and his wife was there, and she was like swollen, her abdomen and legs and arms, just really swollen. And uh, one of the guys on our team, a guy from L.A., Japanese-American guy, actually had some medical training, worked in an emergency room, and he thought it was something, you know, complications of diabetes, there wasn't really much we could do for it because we're like, we're way out in this, this, this rural area. So he gave her a few things. And then by this time, several others from the village had shown up, right? And they've come up into the house because these foreigners are there. They want to come and see what's, see what's happening. And uh, so our, 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 Lao friend, our Lao national worker, Tha, he began to ask uncle and all those there. He said, do you know where sickness comes from? You know, we see a lot of sickness and death around us. Do you know where it comes from? And they're like, no, we don't know. And he said, well, can I tell you? Well, yeah, if you know, tell us. And so he goes into a story beginning with creation to Christ. And kind of the strategy was to find people that were open like that, and then they would actually come back and spend several days in that village teaching them through about 50 lessons from creation to Christ. But he wanted to tell just, just a, a shorter version, about 15 minutes, creation of Christ, and talked about how God created the world, and then how sin came into the world, and death through sin. And then he said, after he got to the end, he said, Uncle, 
He said, could I come back and teach you more about this story? And uh, uncle said, well, I have to ask the spirits first. So he got up, and he went over in the corner of the room, and he knelt there for a little while, and then he, come back, then he came back. And we asked him, well, uncle, what, what, did the, what did the spirits say? And he said, they want to know who came to visit me today. You see, uncle wasn't about to do anything that threatened the appeasement of those spirits. He was in bondage to them. That's what it looks like to be harassed and helpless, to be pinned down and harassed by a predator. So as, as, as Jesus saw this, he was moved with compassion, right? Now, uh, I'm a part of a ministry in Minneapolis called Engage Global. And uh, we're a missions mobilization ministry. And uh, every, every week from January to Thanksgiving, we have a different church in our building going through our training. And one of the things we do in our training is we, we teach people to go out and see the crowds. Not with their eyes, but with their, with their heart, with their mind and their heart. And so I want to give you just a little little taste of what it's like to see the crowds and that's actually step one i'm going to give you a a little taste what it's like to see the crowds all right so i'm going to show some slides up here and there'll be two pictures side by side one picture will be from minnesota and the other picture will be from somewhere else in the world and each slide we're going to take a little vote how many how many to see if you know which one's from minnesota which one's from somewhere else in the world all right how many think the picture on the left, on your left, is Minnesota? Raise your hand. Okay. How many think the picture on the right is Minnesota? Raise your hand. All right. And a lot of you aren't voting. Ah. Next picture. How many think the picture on the left is Minnesota? Raise your hand. How many think the picture on the right is Minnesota? Raise your hand. How many are two for two so far? <laughs> okay, because some of you, good, good. All right, this one's a little harder. <laughs> how, many, how many say the picture on the left is Minnesota? Okay, how many think picture on the right is Minnesota? Ah, good job. All right, how many think picture on the left is Minnesota? How many think picture on the right is Minnesota? Oh, anybody perfect so far? <laughs> okay, a couple ladies back there, okay, a few people. All right. How many think the picture on the left is Minnesota? Okay. I think less people are now voting. <laughs> I've got enough wrong. Okay. How many think the one on the right is Minnesota? Okay, most of you think that one, and you are right. And then, how many think the picture on the left is Minnesota? A few. What about the picture on the right? Ah, all right. So you can see Minnesota is a very diverse place, and the people have come from all over the world there. We got tribals, Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists, and people are living out their same cultural and religious practices much the same way they did in their home country. And so one of the things we do in our training, we bring people in and we teach them how to go out and see the crowds, 
right? How to see the crowds. Now, I'll have to admit that a lot of times church groups that come to go out and see the crowds, many times, especially when we're talking about the religious crowds, they go out rather than with compassion, they go out with contempt because of what the people believe. And they rather argue than love. So one of the principles that we teach in our training is engage the person, not the religion. Because engaging the religion only leads to arguments. You know, listen, this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. Listen to what Paul wrote to young Timothy. He said, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct and hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And listen to this, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil is taking them captive to do his will. You know, when I, read a verse, when I read verses like that and listen to what Paul said there, you know what I think to myself? You know, I think the church in America has a lot of misplaced anger towards Muslims. We are angry at Muslims for believing what they've been taught their whole life rather than being angry at the one who has deceived them. We, we, had a, we had a church come through our training three, four years back, and uh, it was a large church, you know, several thousand. And the missions department of that church, they were really excited about this team that was coming. And there was a lady on this team, and they were excited that she was there because they said she's a very influential lady in the church. Every Tuesday morning, she has a Bible study at the church, and they're so excited that she's coming to get this training, and, you know, and uh, so before we send them out, we, uh, we have an uh, introduction and stuff to, they're going to go out to these Somali markets, Muslim markets. And uh, we're preparing them to go, giving them some stuff they need to know. And just as about if they're ready to go out, she makes a statement something like this. She said, you know, I don't really like Muslims. She said, I'm not sure why God allows them to exist. <laughs> and we're getting ready to send her out to a Muslim market, right? Well, we send them out, and we, our staff was praying because we don't go out with them. We, te we teach them how to be learners, and we send them out to practice that. And so we started praying, Lord, you know, pray for her and for her experience. Well, this lady, she goes, walks into the market, and like the first I mean, these markets are, it's like being in Africa in the Somali market. There's mosque in there. You're here to call to prayer. You know, the, the one with all the colorful material, that's, that's in the Somali market. She walks into the market. The first stall, the lady there right away says, oh, welcome. And she invites her into her store, right? She went in. She sits down with this lady. This lady began to open up and share with her, share her life, show her, show her store, well, this lady from this church ended up buying a whole bunch of stuff from her and came back. And during the debrief, she's showing all the stuff she bought. She's talking about this, this great conversation she had. 
and how much she can't wait to go back to her church and on Tuesday morning share this with all the ladies in her Bible study. See, she went out with contempt (laughs) for the Muslim people, but after seeing the crowds, not with her eyes, but with her mind, with her heart, she came back with compassion because they were lost and wanted to see them one. (laughs) Amen, thank God she saw the crowds, you know? I mean, this is the only commercial of the whole night, but I invite you, bring a group and come to Minneapolis and let's go see the crowds. So he saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion. And so he turns to the disciples and what does he say? The harvest is truly plentiful, but the labors are few. So second action, first, see the crowds. Second action, be an informed intercessor is know the need. So he says the harvest is truly plentiful. And I don't know if you you saw a map like this or somebody talked to you about how many unreached people groups and all the stats and those kinds of things. So if they did, this is just a review. But here we have this map. It's kind of three different colors, kind of a green, yellow, red. The green established, significant established church. Yellow forming nominal church. Red is where unreached, least reached or unreached are. And what do we call that area of the world that's red? 1040 window, right? And Statistics tell us about 88% of all the unreached people groups in the world live in the 1040 window, but about 98% of all the people who live in unreached people groups live in the 1040 window. That's about 3.1 billion people, right? Yeah, the harvest is plentiful. If we take a a, a picture of the 1040 window, a close-up, this, this picture here, rather than all the countries being red, they're actually color-coded by the major religious blocks in the 1040 window. And there's five major religious blocks, and the way we can remember those five religions is through the acrostic thumb. So the T is tribal. Now, tribal, there's no one country that's just tribal groups, tribal religions, but there actually exists in all of those countries. And then the H is in the yellow, Hindu, that's in the yellow. And then U is unreligious, and that's basically China and North Korea, the atheistic governments. M is Muslim, and that's represented by all the green countries. And then B is Buddhist, and they're in the orange. And so Satan is using the strongholds of religion to deceive the nations. Right? So... Jesus said in his day, and it's true in our day, the harvest is truly plentiful. But then he said, the laborers are few. And I don't know if if you talked about it in one of the classes during these last few weeks, but research tells us that only one out of every 10 missionaries sent from U.S. churches actually goes to unreached peoples in the 1040 window. So yes, the harvest is plentiful, but even still today, the laborers are few. Now, we don't have a problem understanding the harvest is plentiful because we can look all around us in our neighborhoods and city and we see all kinds of lost people, right? But we may have trouble understanding exactly what it means that says the laborers are few, right? I mean, we actually have a lot of laborers. Look how many laborers are just in this room alone to reach the people in this city. 
And this is just one church of others, right? Now, whether the, whether the workers are doing the work, that's another sermon altogether, right? But what does it look like to live in a place where the workers are truly few, right? Well, my wife and I moved to a place like that. When we moved to Laos, we lived up 4,000 feet up in the mountains in a city called Ponsoan. And Ponsoan translated into English means Heaven's Hill. So I lived in Heaven's Hill, right? Beautiful place. And uh, Laos was a growing economy, um, and uh, we lived in the provincial capital. And so our, you know, Laos doesn't give a missionary visa, so we had to have some other kind of a visa to be there. So we opened up a, a vocational center, and my wife and I were teaching English. And uh, we wanted to get the leaders in the community, the heads of families, the decision makers. So we opened up on Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday evening classes. And so those students we had coming, they were government leaders there in the province. They were uh, business people doing business with neighboring countries, those kinds of things. So I, I, I described this to let you know, this isn't like like some jungle, isolated jungle village somewhere. This is a provincial capital. These guys are driving trucks and cars, nice cars, nice trucks. Not as nice as Naples, but some of them. Um, there are a lot of nice cars around here. Anyway, uh, you know, coming to class. And, and so, you know, and this one particular night, it's a Friday night classes, and my colleague Sam, he's from London. And this particular Friday, it was Good Friday. And my colleague Sam, he had an advanced English class, so he decided to open his class the evening of Good Friday this way. He said, class, he said, today in my country is a holiday. He said, in fact, in many countries around the world, today is a holiday. Do you know what holiday? And the class is like, no, we don't know what holiday. And then he said, and the reason it's a holiday is because a famous person died on this day. They still don't know what holiday. And then he said, and what's so amazing is not only did this famous person die, but three days later, he came back to life. <laughs> Do you know what holiday? And the class is just like, no way. Because if there was a holiday celebrated around the world about a guy who died and three days later came back to life, we would know. Who was he? And, and Sam said his name was Jesus. And the class was like, no, we've never heard of him. Never heard his name. That's what it looks like to be in a people group that has few laborers. There had been nobody there to tell them until our missions team moved in. And praise God, we saw a church planted. So, he's going from town to town, village to village. He sees the crowds they're being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's moved with compassion. And he tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And then he told them this, pray for workers. Pray for workers. Right? Now, think about that. You have all, you know, you're, you're looking at this crowd of lost people, and Jesus doesn't say, pray for the lost to be saved, does he? Instead, he says, pray for labors to be sent. Now, I think to myself, what a brilliant strategy, right? 
Because I just pray for the lost to be saved, God save them. That kind of takes me out of the picture, right? Because salvation is something only God can do. But when I start praying, Lord, send somebody to tell them, wow, that really personalizes it. Because how long can I pray, Lord, send somebody to tell them before I have to at least honestly ask myself, should I be one of those that goes to tell them? In fact, I'm not sure I can even sincerely pray that prayer unless I'm at least willing to go myself. So he says, ask the Lord of Harvest to send out workers. Now what's interesting, that word send out here, it's the same Greek word used every time that Jesus cast out or sent out demons, right? Um, You know, those demons didn't leave voluntarily. They were cast out. And so what he's telling us here is that workers will be cast out into the harvest fields of the world if we will just pray. So you might even say there's two things in the New Testament cast out by prayer, demons and missionaries. (laughs) So, let me uh, give you some ways that you can pray for unreached peoples. Anybody been on the website Joshua Project? Raise your hand if you have. Okay. How many of you at least heard of Joshua Project? Okay, a few of you. Joshua Project is a website that doesn't belong to like a certain church or denomination, but it's, it's for the church. And it tracks the progress of the gospel among people groups. So it is a great starting point to begin to research and see where is the gospel gone and where does it still need to go. And so, how many of you have a cell phone? Yeah, okay, good. So, uh, Joshua Project actually has uh, uh, an app called Unreached of the Day. Has anybody ever downloaded that app? Anybody here have that app downloaded? One person. Okay. I'm going to challenge you with this, that, that when, when this night is over, that before you go to bed tonight, that you download this app, okay, the Unreached of the Day, the Joshua Project Unreached of the Day. And if you open up that app, every day it highlights a different unreached people group. So here, this was a few days ago on March 4th, it's the Western Balok in Iran. And if you scroll down, it shows the population of that people group, what percentage is Christian, and what percentage is evangelical. So Christian would include all Christian, Catholic, that kind of thing. Evangelical is those truly born again. And you see this people group, almost 800,000 and 0.0% evangelical. Then if you scroll down, it, it tells you about those people. It shows you how to pronounce. And then you see at the bottom there, it says, I am praying. So once you've prayed for them, you can hit that button. And then it records how many people, attracts how many people that day have prayed for that particular people group. All right? So some different ways that you could use this app. One is what we call 938 daily prayer. Matthew 938 says, ask the Lord of harvest sends out workers. So what our staff has done is we've set our alarm for 938 every day. And at 938, when the alarm goes off, stop, pick up my phone, I open up the app, I, make, I just read real quick, it only takes a couple minutes, and then I pray for that people group. What a simple way every day to pray and ask 
the Lord of the harvest has sent labors. Another way is family devotions, right? Um, my youngest, 14, still at home. She's in eighth grade. Every morning before we leave for school, we have family devotions. We're going through the book of Mark right now. And then when we pray, we open up this app. We see who's, who's the unreached people group of the day, and we read about them, and then we pray. Because I want my daughter to understand that there are millions beyond access to the gospel. And I'm trying to help cultivate her heart for the lost, especially those that are beyond access to the gospel. When my daughter, we, we homeschooled her until the last couple of years. Now she's at a small private Christian school. But her and my older daughter, when they were both homeschooled, we would do this every morning, and we would pull out, a, we had a map of the world, and we would read that unreached people group. We'd find the country, we'd read about them, and then we'd put our finger on that country, and we would pray for that people group that day. Some simple ways to just begin to build that global vision. How about small group? Do you guys have small groups here? Okay. And if you're in a small group, do you usually pray at small group? You probably, there's probably some point in the small group that you pray. Well, what if, you know, we're not talking about starting something new, but what if a part of your small group and, and part of that prayer time, what if you also just took a couple extra minutes and opened up that app and prayed for the unreached people group of the day? Simple thing to do. But now you're not only doing it yourself, now you're mobilizing others to do it as well. How about Sunday morning service? <laughs> right? Um, well, I was just talking to you about my friend in Athens that planted a church. Right, planted a church a year ago. He, he, a young guy went through our training, and now we're coaching him in his, in his church plant and trying to build a real global vision in his church. And so every Sunday morning, as a part of the morning service, they pray for the unreached people group that day. And he says it's having a great impact on his people because every Sunday, first of all, it's something they do every Sunday, so they begin to realize this is part of who we are as a church and as believers, right? And then every week they're looking at these people groups that are, you know, 800,000 people and they have 0% Christian. And it's starting to, 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 to convict. <laughs> and people say, we need to do something about that. So what, what a simple way. Also on Joshua Project, we have printed off these unreached people group cards. So you can print these. They come in. You print them off in a sheet. And what we did is we cut them up. And this is, we, we've printed off every unreached people group. And we put them on these cards with these colored backgrounds. And then we've put them underneath a map. And this is, this is at Engage Global. This is at our facility there. And as teams come through, we spend a lot of time during weekend in prayer praying for different unreached people groups by name. And you know what's kind of cool is we've had several churches and even Christian schools that have come through our training that have went back home and have put one of these up in their church and are beginning to mobilize their church to pray. So just some, some ways that you can uh, be, uh, live as a global Christian. I think that is the key place to start. Second, global goer. A, glo a goer, global goer is one who establishes churches within people groups where the church does not yet exist. Let me ask this, how many are here tonight and you are considering, thinking God may be leading you to go? Raise your hand. 
Okay, that's several. All right? And those who raise your hand, this is your home church that's going to be sending you. Okay? What I want to do real quick is I want to just look at what led up to the very first sending of missionaries. And I want to kind of look at what led up to the sending of the very first missionaries in history. And then from that, draw some observations for those of you who are thinking God may be leading you to go. And for the rest of you who are part of this church who will be sending them. So take your Bibles now and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, let's uh, start in verse 4 and read through verse 9. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he, talking about Jesus, was eating with them, talking about his disciples, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority. But look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And you remember, as Jesus went up, what were they doing? They were watching him go, right? And they're watching, and he's getting higher and higher. And pretty soon he disappears behind the clouds, and they're still looking up when two men dressed in white appear and ask a pretty obvious question. What are you looking in the sky for? This same Jesus who left is coming back. And by implication, they're saying, they're saying go and do what he told you to do. So what do they do? Well, they go back to Jerusalem and wait. And chapter 2, they receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he preaches, and 3,000 people are saved and baptized, and we have the birth of the church. Right? And then over the next few chapters of Acts, we see this phenomenal growth. It tells us that uh, miraculous signs and wonders are being performed. That, that that every day people are getting saved, right? And by the time you go over to Acts chapter 6, turn over to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests have become obedient to the faith. So by Acts chapter 6, we have a church of thousands. Where? In Jerusalem. <laughs> in Jerusalem. But this is a global message, right? So what does God allow to happen in Acts chapter 7? S Stephen is martyred, right? Persecution. Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7. And Acts chapter 8 verse 1 opens up on the day that Stephen was martyred. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death, talking about Stephen. And it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. And look down to verse 4. Those who've been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
Now the gospel is beginning to cross some geographic borders on the way to the ends of the earth. Amen? And by the way, who, who humanly speaking, who was responsible to take the gospel, begin to take the gospel across these geographic borders to the ends of the earth? What does it say there? Verse 4, you know who? They. <laughs> they. It doesn't even say their names, does it? Who were they? You know who they are? Average ordinary church members like me and you that were scattered by persecution. Those are the ones that God used to get this gospel beginning to go to the ends of the earth. Now, if God used they, average ordinary church members, to get this movement started, who do you suppose God's going to use to finish this movement and getting gospel to every last tribe, language, tongue, and nation? They. Yeah. Average ordinary church members like me and you. Right? Now, some of those that were scattered, though, went farther than Judea and Samaria. So turn over to chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, go to verse 19. It says, Now those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So yes, the gospel is crossing geographic borders and it's spreading, but it's spreading only to Jews, right? But look at verse 20. Some of them that were scattered, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So these guys go on to Antioch, and Antioch was the third largest city in the empire. There's about half a million people in Antioch. And Antioch was a trade crossroads, which resulted in Antioch being very diverse religiously, ethnically, and culturally. And these guys, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch, and they weren't just speaking to Greeks, I mean to Jews, but they were speaking to all the nations from the Greek world living in Antioch. And a great number of both Jews and Gentiles come to Christ, and what happens, they come together in the church, worshiping together. We have the first ever multi-ethnic church. Well, verse 22, and news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch, you know, I think probably, Barnabas, go check this out. Because these aren't Jews. These are Jews worshiping together in a church with Gentiles. Make sure this is, this is right. So when he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Second time we read that a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This church in Antioch is a growing church right? And from what I hear, you guys have been growing pretty good over the last few years. Is that, would that be, amen? Yeah. This is a growing local church. Barnabas is kind of overseeing this growth, and he's like, I need some help, right? So look at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to, where? Tarsus, to look for Saul. Now, I find that interesting, right? Why, did he, why didn't he go back to Jerusalem to find help, because Jerusalem is the church that sent him there. Why did he go get Paul instead? Well, there was a strong Jewish prejudice that existed in the early church, right? And I think Barnabas knew that, that these believers in Jerusalem, they're probably too Jewish to accept what's going on here in Antioch. 
Because Barnabas didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up outside of Jerusalem. He grew up in the Greek world. He was a Hellenistic Jew, right? The men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they weren't from Jerusalem. They had grown up. They were Hellenistic Jews. And, and Saul, who becomes Paul, Paul as well grew up as a Hellenistic Jew. I think it's a brilliant strategy of Barnabas. He knew if I bring these these, these Jews from Jer- Jewish believers from Jerusalem, this is going to be, this is going to be a little, little extreme for them to handle Jews and Gentiles worshiping God together. So he instead goes to get Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And look at this. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Right? So we have twice great numbers of people brought to faith, and now Paul and Barnabas are teaching a great numbers of people, right? Disciples, making disciples in the local church. And disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. I think that's significant because now they're not being identified as Jews and Gentiles, but they're being identified as Christians. It's, it's the first time since the day of Pentecost that this vision of one body is being realized. And now that this model of integration exists, missionaries can be sent, so look over in Acts, Acts chapter 13. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And who were the prophets and teachers, the leaders of the church? Well, there was Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought, been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you see this very diverse leadership, right? They were from North Africa, the Middle East, and rich and poor and black and white. And verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so here we have the very first church in history to intentionally send missionaries. And so they're sent off and they, they go to the island of Cyprus. They're in Salamis and Paphos. And they go up to Antioch and Pisidia. And then they go to Iconium. They go to Lystra. And then they go to Derby. So turn over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21. They go to Derby, and it says, 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to, or preached the word, when they, came, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to, to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. What was the work they completed? <laughs> they preached the gospel, they made disciples, and they planted churches. That is the primary work of missions, right? Miss, missionaries may go do other things, Right? Right, Luke? Agriculture will get you into those places, but the ultimate goal is to see the church planted. The Holy Spirit says, set them apart for the work that I've called them to, and then it says when the work was completed, they came home. And on verse 27, on arriving there, 
they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, to the nations. Wouldn't you love to have been in that report, <laughs> in that service when they reported? They talked about how, how we preached and we saw Jews convert to follow Jesus. And we saw Gentiles who were worshiping in the synagogue who already abandoned the old ways and were seeking the God of Israel. We saw them to convert to follow Jesus. And we even saw those that were worshiping idols turn from worshiping worthless things to worshiping the living God. What a report, right? God has opened the door of faith to the nations through the sending of missionaries. And verse 28 says, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So, I want to make some observations from this for those of you who are thinking about going as well as for those of you in a church that will be sending them. First, one thing that goers need and churches need to be helping them develop is spiritual maturity, right? We saw that Paul and Barnabas, they were a part of the church leadership in that church were prophets and teachers there in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were a part of that. So there was a level of spiritual maturity. So if you're thinking about going, I have to ask, how's your walk with God? Are you growing? Are you walking in freedom? Have you maybe hooked up with one of the older believers here? And by older, I mean they've been a Christian a long time. Maybe gray hair too, but having them disciple you and, and help you in your relationship with Christ. Number two, you need to have ministry experience. Remember, it says Paul and Barnabas, they taught great numbers of people in the local church. They were disciples, making disciples in the local church. They were leading people to Christ. They were discipling people, teaching them, helping others grow in their faith. So I gotta ask, if you're thinking about going, have you ever led anybody to Christ? Do you know how to disciple somebody? I, I was amazed when I went to the field at how many people were on the field that had never led anybody to Christ or never discipled somebody in their own language and own cultural context, and now they're in a whole different country trying to do that in a different language and in a different culture. Wow, talk about difficult, right? I mean, I, I, I planted a, a loud church in 1987, uh, there in Iowa years before I went overseas. Are you getting ministry experience? Confirmation from church leaders. The Antioch church leaders fasted and prayed even after hearing from the Holy Spirit to confirm God's calling on Paul and Barnabas. Now, you know, a lot of mobilization happens outside of the local church in a, in a conference or a class even like this one. Now, this class, you guys are all, is anybody here that's not from this church taking this class? Okay, just a, just a couple of people. Yeah, but a lot of times when I go to teach at classes like this, there's multiple churches attending, which is great. I have a problem with, I mean, I go and teach, but what happens a lot of times is Somebody, uh, somebody will get mobilized and get awakened and they'll start down this road to the nations by talking to agency leaders and making all these plans long before they ever speak to their church leaders. And, and, then, and then once all these plans are made, then they come back to their church leaders and they say, 
okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what God's calling me to do, and this is where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. Can you support me? Well, listen, going is not just between the goer and God. Right? These, these church leaders, even after hearing from the Holy Spirit, spent more time to confirm God's calling in their life. Missionary training. Paul and Barnabas had cross-cultural ministry experience by growing up as a Hellenistic Jew in this multi-ethnic world, Greek world, as well as being part of a multi-ethnic church. So they had a lot of cross-cultural experience. But I would say especially if you, I look around, I see all white people but Matios, right? Yeah. And so, are you getting outside of your comfort zone? Are you making, if you're thinking about going, do you have any cross-cultural friendships? Are you spending time with people from another culture, another religion, another religious, uh, religious block? And have you thought about maybe going to get some training, how to learn language, how to learn culture? Let me go on. Pre-filled preparation. Paul and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit said, set them apart. So they were set apart before being sent, indicating there was a, there was a time of, of preparation, right? There was a, a time of preparation. Um, let me just say this. Missions is urgent, but it's not frantic, right? It's urgent, but it's not frantic. There's a lot of things to do to get prepared to go. Raising up supporters, raising up prayer supporters, building relationships, getting to know your local church. Um, a lot of things to do in preparing to go. Next, there was a commissioning. Paul and Barnabas received a commission from the church as the leaders placed their hands on them and sent them off. Missionaries don't just go, they're sent, right? And in being sent, they receive a commission. So what that means is that missions is not something that the church does for missionaries. It's what the church does with and through missionaries, right? You send out a missionary to go plant a church among XYZ people group, the church's attitude is, we're planting a church among XYZ people group through this person that we are sending out. And then church planning. Paul and Barnabas were sent to complete a specific task. Holy Spirit set them apart for the work that I've called them, and when that work was completed, they knew it was completed, and they returned home. And the work, we said, was church planting. Now, when we see scenes like this, oh, I'm sorry, were you trying to get that last picture, Matthias? Okay, go ahead. Okay. When we see pictures like this, we can be overwhelmed with compassion, and, and rightly so. But it becomes easy to make meeting these needs what missions is all about. And so often we'll go out and we'll do a lot of good things all under the name of missions. But if in meeting these needs we don't ultimately see the church planted, then I'm not sure we've obeyed the mandate that Christ gave us. So then how do those needs get met? There was a study done by a professor from the University of North Carolina named Robert Woodbury. And he did this study and he wanted to find out why 
Some countries in the world prosper and other similar countries in the world don't. And uh, he, he did this whole complete study and then he, then he compiled the results, right? And in his own words, he said, the results land out on me like an atomic bomb. And this is what he wrote. He found that conversionary missionary Protestants, right, those that have gone out for the purpose of converting people to Christ, have done more lasting social good globally than those who only or mainly focus on doing social good alone, right? So I think the, the implication there is if we want to see lasting cultural and social transformation among a people group, we focus on the conversion of people from false religions to Jesus through the planting of the church who will then apply the love and justice of Christ to that people group. Continuing, we see accountability, right? They remain accountable. They came back and reported to the church. In fact, after Paul's second missionary journey, he came back again to Antioch and spent time there with the believers. And the third time, he doesn't make it to Antioch because he gets arrested and goes to Rome. Then we saw they took a home, their home assignments, right? They returned home and they stayed there a long time with the disciples, right? Both being ministered to and ministering, right? The, 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 the relationship between the church and the missionary is a two-way, right? The, we as a church minister to them, but they minister to us as missionaries. Those are some things to think about, both of you are thinking God's leading you to go, or those of you in this room who are older believers, these are important things that you could come walk alongside some of these young people that are thinking about going and helping them in their walk and in their growth and in their preparation to be sent well. So if you would, um, the third way to live as a global Christian to make his name known among the nations is that as a sender, a sacrificial sender. And a sender is somebody who partners in various ways with those who go. So being a sender doesn't just mean, whew, I don't have to go, I'm a sender. No, it means you're living with the same passion and commitment to see the nations brought to Christ, but you're doing it in the role of a sender. So go back to Acts chapter 13. I want to go back to Acts chapter 13. In verse 1 of chapter 13, we, we read of, the, of the, the leaders in the church in Antioch. And in verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, the, the fact that they were fasting tells us this, this wasn't just a one-time casual prayer meeting. But rather, it was, a, it was a, a, a period of intense, focused prayer. And if we look in this passage, it, it doesn't tell us why they were fasting or what they prayed for. But judging by what happened, I think we're safe to assume that this growing local church, probably because they knew there was more than just them locally, they were praying for clear direction. And I think Luke makes this connection for us when he says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
that the Holy Spirit spoke. And what was the clear direction they received? It was to send missionaries, right? Missionaries don't go, they're sent by the local church. I mean, think about this. Even Paul knew from the moment of conversion that he was going to the nations, yet God brought him to a local church first to be sent. So missionaries don't go, they're sent. They're sent by the local church. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of illustrate this whole, the different roles of sending. And so, Mateos, can I have you come up here? And can you come over here and stand? You're going to represent the local church, okay? The local church. Mateos represents the local church. I could have picked a bigger guy and called it a mega church, but... You'll, you'll do well. All right, so the local church has a mandate to disciple all nations, right? Hopefully you, you saw that in, in the first few weeks of this class. The means for the local church to accomplish that mandate is by sending missionaries. So strategic missions in the local church begins with the mandate and not the means, Okay? Again, the church has a mandate to disciple all nations. The means to accomplishing the mandate is sending missionaries. So strategic missions in the local church starts with the mandate, not the means. So let me, let me talk about what happens when we start with the means and what happens when we begin with the mandate. When we begin with the means, whoops, I, I, I might have done something wrong. <laughs> I know, I caught you by surprise, Noah, sorry. There we go. Okay, a church that begins with the means, sending missionaries. The mission's focus in that church becomes on supporting missionaries, right? The question is, who are we gonna support? And so the mission strategy in that church becomes reactive. And as I told you, we have a different church in our, going through our training every week from January to November and this is what I see in so many churches, that missions in the church has evolved over time through reacting to appeals for money. So this, this very reactive mission strategy. And so in that church, the missions map is scattered locations. I don't know about you, I grew up in church like that where, you know, in the lobby you've got a missions map and it's got the pins. And in this kind of church, Pins are scattered all across the globe, right, in all different countries. And so the mission's impact in that church is being measured by width. The, the, the thinking, the old thinking was the more pins we have and the more countries we have, the more we're doing for global missions. When the truth is that you're giving a little bit of money to a lot of people that you really don't know anything about. And so the mission's attitude in that church is, well, missions, that's what the missionaries are doing. And I can tell you as, you know, spending years as a missionary myself, I've been brought into those conferences, right, where, where people, you know, we're up the missionaries, where they put us up on the, on the stage, and we're the heroes. It doesn't matter what we've done, just the fact that we've gone makes us a hero. Such wrong thinking, right? 
And I'm looking at the crowd in the audience, the, the, the congregation, and you know, they're thinking one of two things. Either one, I can never do what you're doing, or number two, I'm glad you're doing it, now I don't have to, right? In fact, I have a friend who was a missionary in Africa. He, he said he was actually at a conference, and somebody came up to him and said that very thing. You know, I'm really glad you're, you're, you're doing this, so I don't have to. <laughs> so the missions engagement in that church is you end up with a church full of spectators, right? A church full of spectators. But what if we, as a local church, began with the mandate now the mission's focus is on finishing the task, right? Now it's on finishing the task. So the mission strategy is now proactive because now we're asking the question, where has the task been finished and where is it not finished? And prioritizing there. And so then the missions map in that church, rather than scattered locations, we've got strategic placement. You still may have several pins, but they're only in one or two places, depending on the size of the church. And so now the mission's impact is measured by depth rather than width. We know those missionaries. We know who they are. We know what they're doing. We're involved with them. We've been there. We've, we've helped them in their long-term ministry. So now the mission's attitude is missions is what we are doing. We are planting a church in this country among this people group in partnership with those that we've sent. And so the, the mission's engagement of that church is a church full of participants. And isn't that what we want? And isn't that what those who are sent want? They are sent well. So this local church has made a strategic focus on an unreached people group, all right? So, um, well, I hate to split you two up, but Camille, can you, um, can you stand right here, and you're going to represent an unreached people group. So, Camille's going to represent the Gaozhong Miao. It's a people group in China, in southern China. We did some research among this people group. 1.3 Gaozhong Miao people um, their language is not in writing, so they have no Bible, they, they have no church, and there's no missionaries among them, right? And this local church is making a strategic focus to bring this people group into the kingdom, right? And so the vital link between the local church in its mission in the world, the vital link between the church and its mission in the world are missionaries, right? Are missionaries. So this church, because they made a strategic focus, they don't have a wait and see strategy. Let's wait and see if somebody volunteers to go. They actually have a mobilize and recruit strategy. They're not reactive, they're proactive. And they've been watching Luke and they said, you know what, we feel like Luke, maybe God is wanting us to send Luke. And so they've recruited Luke. So Luke, can I have you come up here? Can you stand right here by your church? <laughs> there you go. And so Luke is the, is, is the vital link between the church and its mission in the world. Now, how are they going to get Luke from there to here? 
by sending. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a few, people, a few more of you up here to help to illustrate all the different roles of sending, the way we're going to get Luke over here. So the first role, I want to recognize a special role in sending. Can I have you come up? Well, yeah, okay. You're not very old, but you're, you're going to be. Okay, this is your mom, Luke. This is your mom, okay? <laughs> is there anybody here that, that has a child on the mission field right now? Anybody like that? Okay, you were telling me you're your son there. Anybody else? Yeah, there, there's a special role of parents in sending. I remember when, when uh, my wife and I first felt the Lord leading us to leave and, and go to Laos, I called up my parents and I said, I need to meet with you. And I went to meet with my parents and I told my parents, I said, God's calling us to go to Laos. So we're going to leave the country and move to Laos. And you know, you know what my dad said? He said, well, if that's what God is telling you to do, he said, you better do it, <laughs> right? Thank God for that response. Because as we work in mobilizing people, that's many times not the response that they get from parents. And I'm talking Christian parents. Oftentimes, from Christian parents, it's great resistance. In fact, sometimes it seems like Christian parents are the, are the biggest hindrance in completing the Great Commission. Right? So, we, we, you know, as parents, we raise our kids to serve God, to love God. But it doesn't make sense to me that when they decide they want to go to the other side of the world and serve God there, we're like, no, no, not, that's not what I meant. I mean, serve God and live next door so I can see the grandkids. So, it's an important role of parents letting their kids go. But now this local church is going to partner with Luke to send him to this unreached people group. And I think one of the best examples of the way a church has partnered with a missionary is, is the church in Philippi. So take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. And if you guys don't mind, you're gonna, I'm going to eventually let you sit down, but if you can, right? So turn to the book of Philippians. Who wrote, who wrote Philippians? Paul did, right? Now, Paul had planted the church in Philippi during his second missionary journey. And this church in Philippi had supported Paul financially, he said, time and time again. And once again, this church was sending Paul financial support, and to get the support to him, they sent it with one of the church members, a guy named Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus leaves the church in Philippi, goes to Paul, takes in the financial support, stays there with him for a while, and, and he got sick and he almost dies, right? And it kind of stressed Paul out. And now that Epaphroditus is better, Paul is sending him back to the church in Philippi, and he sends with him this letter to the church in Philippi. And so the book of Philippians, the letter to the church in Philippi, is a missionary thank you letter. Paul is thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. If you look in Philippians chapter 1, look at verse, starting in verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. This word partnership in the Greek is the word koinonia. Have you ever heard of that word, that Greek word koinonia? Yeah, it's a lot of times it's translated fellowship. Like in Acts chapter 2, they were committed to the, to the uh, fellowship, to the breaking of bed, to prayer, and so on. Sometimes it's translated participation. 
It's this idea of two or more people sharing something in common. And what did the church in Philippi and Paul share in common? It was getting this gospel to the ends of the earth. And so Paul said here that I thank my God for your partnership in the gospel. And he said, from the first day until now. And so from the first day, they had shown Paul practical support. Can I have you come up here and help me? You were hoping I would call you. I could see it in your, in your face. Okay, so take one step. You're just going to take one step each time we bring somebody up here, okay? So practical support. Like right from the very first day that Paul showed up, they were, you know, giving him a place to stay, feeding him food, you know, taking care of those practical needs. You know, and missionaries have a lot of practical needs. Think about Luke, right? Him and his wife. You're not married, right? We'll pretend. Him and his wife, they're going to sell their house and get ready to go, right? And between the time of selling their house and going, there's maybe a period of weeks or even a couple months where they have no place to stay. I know people have invited people like Luke into their home, say, here, stay with us as you prepare to go. Maybe they have a lot of things to do to get ready to sell their house and all that. I know teams that have gone and painted the house and made repairs and everything, get it ready to sell. A lot of different practical ways, right? Um, And when Luke... Every, every few years, he's going to come home on a home assignment, right? And when he comes back, him and his wife, they're not going to have a car, a phone, all those kinds of things. I remember when I came back, people giving us a phone to use and a car to drive and the things we needed to come back and do what we needed to do during a home assignment before we went back to the field. So there are a lot of ways that you can provide practical support. Looking in Philippians chapter 1, go down to verse 19. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers... And the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So, can I have you come up here? Thank you. So, there's not only practice support, but prayer support, right? Paul there, he said, I know prayer works, and I know you're praying, <laughs> right? How many of you receive a, a prayer letter from a missionary? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you. Awesome. And how many of you pray for that missionary that you get their letter? Raise your hand. Awesome. And how many of you, when you pray for that missionary, you always let them know that you're praying for them? Oh, okay. A lot less hands, right? I can tell you from the missionary side of things, you send out all these newsletters, and then you think to yourself, well, I I think people are praying. I hope they're praying. But I don't know, because nobody ever lets me know. So let me just encourage you to, one, receive prayer letters from missionaries, and number two, pray for them, but most importantly, let them know you're praying, even if it's just a short sentence in an email that just says, hey, I received your newsletter, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Every time I do that, missionaries always respond to me, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, they must not be getting many responses, because they would, if everybody that got a newsletter, was responding, they wouldn't have time to follow up everybody. So the fact they're following with me must mean there's hardly anybody responding to them. And so I encourage people to pray for missionaries and pray with missionaries. Now, by praying for missionaries means that I'm going to pray for their language learning. I'm going to pray for their, um, you know, culture acquisition. I'm going to pray for their family, for their health, for those different things, but also praying with missionaries. I think the best example we have of praying with a missionary is J.O. Frazier. 
Anybody know who J.L. Frazier is? Ever heard of him? J.L. Frazier, in 1908, at 21 years of age, uh, graduate student engineering, left, China, or left England to go to China. And uh, he uh, spent a few years learning Chinese, but he wanted to bring one of the minority people groups in China into the kingdom. And so he went to work among the Lisu. And he spent several years learning the Lisu language and, and went to live among the Lisu. And he spent several years uh, seeing little to no fruit. And uh, he went through a time of real de- depression and discouragement. Well, then he mobilized a group of people in his home of England to pray for the Lisu people. And, you know, they later, the people back in England later wrote that, that he kept us so well informed, we felt like we lived next door to the Lisu <laughs> as they began to pray for them, right? Uh, eventually, they saw the, J.O. Frazier saw this breakthrough, and hundreds and eventually thousands of Lisu came to Christ. And today, the Lisu are a people, a Christian people group in China. Frazier eventually wrote this, I am feeling more and more that it is, after all, just the prayer of God's people that called down blessing upon the work, whether they are directly engaged in it or not. Paul may plant and Apollos water, but it is God who gives the increase, and this increase can be brought down from heaven by believing prayer, whether offered in China or England. If this is so, then Christians at home can do as much for foreign missions as those actually on the field. What I covet more than anything else is earnest, believing prayer. Frazier went on to say, I believe it will only be known on the last day how much has been accomplished in overseas missions by the prayers of earnest believers at home. Prayer is the primary work of missions. Next, can I have you come up? Provide emotional support. You look like a caring person. That's why I picked you for, for this one, right? <laughs> emotional support. Look at Ephesians, uh, Philippians. Go to chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. Paul, continue writing to this church. He says, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. And look, what he, look how he describes Epaphroditus. He calls him my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Now look what he says. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give. So for the church to help take care of Paul, they sent Epaphroditus to personally care for his needs. And does it sound like Paul was pretty encouraged by his visit, emotionally encouraged, right? In fact, he calls he calls. Epaphroditus' visit, he calls it the work of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? 
That, that, I mean, missions is the work of Christ, but so is visiting and encouraging and supporting emotionally and mission on the field. That's also the work of Christ. Because I remember being on the field and we're seeing a church planted among our people group, and I remember wishing that somebody from my church would come and see what's going on, and that nobody came. I didn't want a whole team. I don't need a whole team because, honestly, we're in a secure location and a team would bring too much attention. But what if a couple people came? And, and could see what God is doing and go back and report to the church. But yet, nobody came. So that is the work of Christ. And then, brother, can you come up? And yeah, I'll let you stand by. I think this is your wife, maybe. Oh, your sister. No, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. All right. Financial support. All right. Oh, man, should have gave him emotional support. He's the one that's making people laugh and... So turn over to Philippians chapter 4. By the end of this letter, then, Paul gets around to thanking him for the gift they sent. Philippians chapter 4, and starting in verse 14, Paul says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received the gift, received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Isn't that great when a missionary says, I am amply supplied? I have what I need to focus on the work that I'm here to do. And he says, now that I've received this gift, I'm amply supplied. And look what he says about the gift. He says, these gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He said, what you've given is not to me, it's to God. You've given this to God to support his work. And then he says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. We all know that verse, don't we? And we often use that verse kind of as a catch-all that God's going to meet our needs even when we've been irresponsible financially. But actually, in the context, this verse is, this promise is given in the context of giving to global missions. So, financially, supporting financially so that, that Luke is amply supplied, that he has everything he needs. Now, I'm going to have to have you move over a little bit. Can I have you come up? And you're going to represent a mission agency, all right? The church is the one who sends, Right? The, the, the missionary set out under the authority of the local church, and the church can do many things, but maybe not everything. So, so I think it's good for a local church to partner with a mission agency, and you want to partner with a mission agency that understands that the church is the one who sends, and they're coming alongside to support and to partner with and to help the local church, right? And so like Greg and, and Julianne and the people are last week from GSI. That's why our ministry loves to partner with them because they understand that. So you have a mission agency. There's a few things the mission agency does, right? Can I have you come up? They, they take, care, take care of finances. You know, when I lived in the country of Laos, you know, with the mission, mission agency I was with, you know, my supporters would send money to Denver, Colorado, and then they would process that money and they would send it over to the international headquarters, and then from, them, from there to our field, and from the field to the country where I lived, right? 
And, and thank God for all those people that were good with numbers and finances that keep us straight between all the different countries. And then I lived in Laos, but I still lived in America, so I still had to pay taxes. But I'm in the U.S., and so they would do, my, they would do our taxes for us and all these different kinds of financial help that they provided, right? Can I have... You come, yeah, you knew I was coming to you, right? You're like looking around, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Then there's an entry strategy, right? Luke is going to a difficult place, a, a, what we call a creative access nation. They don't give missionary visas. He's probably gonna have to do some kind of a business and find some kind of way to be there. I don't know, did Greg share last week what, what they did in Russia and Siberia? Do you remember that? And some of the businesses. And so, uh, GSI does a very good job in working with missionaries and churches on the field, missionaries on the field and churches and helping them figure out what business can Luke start to give him access to this unreached people group. Hey, buddy, can you, you want to come up here and help us too? Yeah, I know you're trying to get a picture. Is that your mom? Yeah. All right. So, also field staff, right? Like the mission, the agency I chose to go with, the one reason I chose is because of the the field staff that they had. I, there was a guy that was working in Laos, older guy, but when he was 19, he had gone to Laos as a missionary, as a 19-year-old kid, was ended up, in 1972, was ended up captured by the Viet Cong and walked to the Hanoi Hilton in, in Hanoi, Vietnam. Now, younger people, that's not a hotel, right? You older people know that that was a prisoner of war camp. He was there when John McCain was there as a, as a prisoner of war, right? Five months, and then he got out, came back to North America, and then he ended up, him and his buddy ended up going back, and they spent 22 years in Thailand, and now he was going into Laos, back into Laos, and so he ended up being my team leader, and so the stuff I learned from him on the field was awesome. All right. You look like a doctor. Uh, uh, you'll be a doctor someday, so I'm going to, you, you can be the medical, all right? You probably need to, what's that? Her dad's a doctor. Wow, well, look at that. All right. So medical, right? When I was, when I was uh, in Laos, we were up 4,000 feet up the mountains, and, and uh, you know, my wife and I were teaching English, and we come home. Both of us had kind of been sick, and I came from class, and I was really sick, but my wife was sick, so I'm trying to take care of her, but I just kept getting worse and worse, so finally, I told my wife, I just need to go to bed. I'm sorry, I can't care for you anymore. I'm getting too sick, and then in the middle of the night, I woke up and woke her up, and I said, you know what? This isn't just a stomach thing. There's something seriously going wrong. So she called our team leader who called our, the, the doctor for our field in another country and was consulting with him on the phone, and they determined it's probably an appendicitis, right? And I'm in so much pain, I don't even care what's going on. I'm just like dying in pain. But later, my team leader told me what was going on, and he was talking to the field doctor, and they were trying to decide would it be more risky for me to wait and take me, fly me to Bangkok for surgery, or would it be more risky to have me be operated in this little mountain hospital in Laos, right? And my team leader told me later, he said, he said, you know, being operated on in Laos, he said, I was concerned. They've never operated on anybody your size. So he said, I was afraid that they would either not use enough anesthesia and you'd wake up in the middle of the surgery, or they would use too much and you would never wake up, <laughs> right? So thank God, thank God for field doctors and all that consulting that went on, and, and eventually they decided, so 
because, again, because of the agency and the medical insurance and all that, they actually had an airplane with two Thai doctors and two Thai nurses, flew from Bangkok, Thailand to Vientiane, Laos, got in a different airplane, flew up to the mountain where I was living, picked me up, flew me back to Vientiane, got a different plane, back to Bangkok where I had surgery, you know? And thank God, because I went there, they did like a sonogram or something, trying to find, they couldn't find my appendix there, so then they put me like a whole CAT scan, it was somehow tucked somewhere, I don't know, you're a doctor, which side is my appendix? <laughs> this one, okay, I can't even remember now, but it was like behind the organ or something, so I'm thinking, when I found all that, I'm thinking, man, if I'd have got surgery in Laos, that guy would have probably just been pulling out organs until he got to the, you know, thank, thank God. And you know, funny thing about being operated on in Asia, at least in Thailand and Laos, in Thailand, if you go to the, if you go to the auto mechanic to get a part changed in your car, when you go to pick up your car, they show you the part they took out to prove, right, to prove that they took it out. And so when I go in for surgery, I'm laying there, my first thing when I open my eyes, they put this jar in front of me and there's my appendix looking at me. Right? But at least it was in a jar. Right? Because later, our landlord in Laos, up in that little mountain, her, her mother had her appendix out. And when we went to visit her in the hospital, she pulled this brown paper out of her pocket, unfolded it, and there was the appendix, and she showed us. So, yes, exactly. You want to come up here and help me? Take one more step over. And then the member care that an agency provides, whether it's, um, you know, leadership development or whether it's, you know, sometimes, you know, problems with homeschooling and questions with homeschooling a family on the field or, or whether it might be, you know, loneliness and dealing with, you know, adjustments and all those kinds of things, but providing member care. Now, I want you to look up here, right? Look at how many different roles of sending it takes to get Luke from his local church to engage this unreached people group, right? So many different roles in sending. And look at all that, and I bet you every one of you here can do at least something, can't you? Every one of you can be involved at least in some way of being a sender and keeping a missionary like Luke on the field so we can engage this unreached people group and see the church planted and see this people group brought into the kingdom. Amen? That's, that's worth doing. Yeah. Yeah, give them a hand. Go ahead and lay, lay your cards on top of here and then you can go take a seat. Thank you very much. All right. All right, um, that is all the time we have. And so somebody was going to come up here. Is that you, Camille? Or, oh, that's okay, that's your husband. So he's going to come up. You got, you got some announcements to give us. So anyway, let me just, as you're coming up, thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed being here tonight. Uh, it's great to see this many people from a church here. And uh, can, I just, can I just pray for, for them? I don't want to pray for you as a church. You've got a few people that raise their hand that maybe you're thinking about going, and uh, missions is not something you do for them, but with them. And so let me just pray for your church. God, I thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for this class and over the last few weeks. Thank you for all that have 
shown up here for this class. And what a, uh, what a good example, Lord, of a church that, that cares uh, about the nations. And I pray for those that raised their hand earlier and said, yes, I'm, I think God may be leading me to go. And Lord, I pray for them as they're in preparation and some of those things we looked at and the different things they can do in preparing to go. I pray for the others in this church that will be sending them and all the different roles that can be played in, in the preparation and the sending part. And Lord, I pray that you, Lord, will stir among those that have taken this class. And as a result, we would see many raised up and sent out and uh, see a people group brought into the kingdom. Lord, we pray for that. And I, ask, I thank you that I've been able to be here tonight to, to be a part of this with, with this church. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.